hey everyone! Welcome to episode 117 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week features an absolute legend in the landscape photography business, David Cobb. David is a photographer living in Oregon and is a founding member of the Photo Cascadia team. David and I covered a lot of really fun ground this week, including his journey as a landscape photographer, photographing Japanese gardens, and his book on that subject, long distance through hiking as a landscape photographer, photo location sharing, and David's excellent blog post about it, and the role of a workshop leader. Over on Patreon, David and I talk all about the origins and vision for Photo Cascadia. Make sure you check out the liner notes on my blog or on your favorite podcasting application. Well, before we get to the show, I wanted to tell you really quickly about one of our patrons for the podcast, Anton Everine. Anton has developed a luminosity masking panel that is very solid and a lot more affordable than most of the other ones on the market. If you want to give it a try, I have some free copies to give away to anyone that writes a five-star review of the podcast over on iTunes. Just write the review, send me a note on your favorite platform of your choice. Okay, let's get to the show. Oh man, David Cobb, it's so cool to finally get you on F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. It's, uh, you know, last time we we tried, there was a hurricane-like wind and that didn't work. So uh, the internet was kind of spotty or down or whatever. And uh, it's nice to be here. Awesome. Well, uh, you've been recommended for the podcast about 116 times and I just recorded episode 116. So um, <laughs> <laughs> you've come highly recommended to the show. I, I heard Michael Valino say that once. So uh, uh, shout out to Michael Valino. Um, he, uh, I, I see him more in the field than any photographer these days. So at, at first it was Brian uh, Potty, uh, at first it was uh, Brian Potty Mouth Rube and then Mark Adamus <laughs> and uh, now it's Michael Bellino. So uh, shout go. out to him. <laughs> well, Michael Bellino has a potty mouth too, just so you know. Oh, I know. I know. I mean, I've, I've met him in the field many times. I, <laughs> I have experienced that firsthand. Nice. Well, not that you need a ton of introduction, but I thought it might be cool for you to maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and then maybe kind of transition into tell us, telling us a little bit about how you got into this crazy world of, as a landscape photographer. Okay. Um, well, I've been photographing pretty much all my life. I, I w my first camera was a James Bond uh, spy case slash machine <laughs> gun. And uh, I fell in love with that and then broke it in a couple of weeks. Um, then I uh, What moved was your on. mission? You know, I didn't have one. I, th I think it was to, to annoy my sister or something like that. <laughs> but the mission was accomplished. Um, but then I went on to... Uh, stealing my parents' camera. And then finally they bought my, bought me a camera. So I, I didn't have to steal theirs anymore. So I got to learn about a SLR for the first time. It was great. Nice. And I, I took off with that, um, did some backpacking with it and took photos here and there. And then the long distance hiking came in and 
uh, with that, I, I took a point and shoot on the, uh, the long hikes and all this time I was working other jobs and I had my own company. I, I was at a music distribution company before I became a oh, photographer wow. and went from the music field off to the photography field. And I always wanted to be an artist. So, um, I guess not painting and not doing sculpture then I, that I went on to photography. So here I am. And that was kind of my, my spurt. Here you are. What was the transition like from the music industry into the photography industry? It, it you know, I gave myself five years. It, it I, I know that you had uh, Sean, my friend, Sean Bagshaw on here and he was always mountain climbing and he was the guy that had to record those mountain climbs and that kind of transitioned him into photography and he gave himself five years. So I didn't know Sean at the time, but I followed that same path. I was, uh, in the music business and then I was doing a lot of hiking and, and photographing with, while I was hiking and documenting those. And then I moved right on into the uh, photography field from there. So I gave myself five years and it seemed to work and went on from there. So that's awesome. When you, when you first, uh, kind of started out and gave yourself five years, did you have a sense of kind of what your plan was to make a living at photography? There was a guy that I knew that was doing workshops, the best in Northwest workshops. And he was, he had two magazines, two coastal magazines, and he was kind of burning out on work workshops and was selling them. So I helped him for two years to teach myself about the trade and, and learn about his clients, uh, all the while improving my photography. And then after two years, I took it over for, for him, from him. And, uh, the workshops were the way that I was first starting to make money. But from there I was also working with galleries and trying to get in galleries and get my name known in the print business, which as you know, print doesn't pay off that well, uh, all the time. So I, you know, I still sell them every year, but, uh, it, it's not the main part of my photography. So I have, right. uh, I, I started working with agencies too at that time and all of that comes together. So like any photographer today in the landscape photography business, you have all these different types, pieces of the pie and a little bit of everything adds up to what you make that year. Right. Have you, how have you seen that pie change shape over the years? The workshops have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger as more and more people are going and attending workshops. So there are more people out there also doing workshops. You know, I, I used to go to the Palouse all the time and I'd be on step toe and there'd be no one else up there. And now you go there and it's just packed with people. So <laughs> right. very, very different than when I started. And I made that transition in 2004. So that was, that's when early when I sold my company and then started in the photography business. So the transition, uh, has changed and there was a recession in there. So that changed things. So people were doing larger workshops, uh, week long workshops or international workshops as much then, and they're doing more local stuff. So, you know, it really, the, the workshop thing expands and 
then contracts uh, over time and, you know, another recession comes and then it's going to contract again. So you really have to find other avenues for um, business. And in the, with the agencies that really seems to have gone from pretty good to terrible. So <laughs> yeah, that's contracted almost to, to nothing these days. Right. Have you, if you had a crystal ball, like what would you put your money on in terms of kind of where this industry is heading and in terms of being able to make a living at it, especially for people that maybe just starting out? It's going to be tough. Um, it's, you know, they, I, a lot, a lot more people are making videos these days and instructional videos. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much longer that's going to go. Uh, the workshop thing, I don't know how much longer that's going to go either. So, you know, in a way it feels like photographers are kind of the coal miners in a way, um, <laughs> you know, but slowly disappearing and may disappear. So it, it's harder and harder to make a living, but you've really got to work your ass off, whether it's eBooks, whether, you know, in all different directions, you've got to work your ass off. So, and I've got, passive income, which is good, um, through the books that I've done on Japanese gardens. And so there's money that comes in from there too. And that's fairly consistent, but, uh, and, and there's some more things in the works, but it, it's going to be tough. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel like you just lobbed a really beautiful softball in my direction because I know I did. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was really hoping to talk to you about your Japanese garden books and, uh, uh -huh. I feel like that's a perfect segue. So like, tell us, you've got a few books on Japanese gardens and uh, maybe kind of tell us, how did you even get started in photographing Japanese gardens? What do you like about photographing Japanese gardens and what are the books all about? Well, I, I started photographing Japanese gardens with infrared film. That's the mm. how I began, and that was back in the 1990s, I think. I'd oh. go to the Portland Japanese Garden, um, way before people were photographing under that tree, I think. And uh, I, I would just go there on a bright, sunny day and photograph with infrared film. And I thought it was really cool. And I liked the results I was getting. And then I would go back with a regular film camera so and start photographing. And then they began using my photos. And I started licensing my photos to the Portland Japanese Garden. And that was kind of my muse. And I'd go back time and time again. That's back when I lived in Portland. I, mm -hmm. I moved further east for the better weather and the more rural living. So I live in a small town now in Mosier, Oregon. Uh, but back then I was going to the Portland Japanese Garden two times a week probably and photographing. So it was my muse. And then I heard that uh, a publisher that does only Tuttle Publishing, and they're really intensive in anything Asian, whether it's Asian food, whether it's karate, whether it's jujitsu, whether it's Japanese gardens, uh, or anything. Huh. So it, it's kind of a niche publisher. So I heard they were rec they were looking for people with ideas, and I pu pushed an idea, and they said, "How about expanding that idea?" We like it. We like your photography. And how about if we do Japanese gardens of North America? We've always wanted to do a book like that. And oh wow! now you have to find a writer. So <laughs> I made a list of writers I wanted. And the number one person that was on my list, I called first out of the blue. I'd never met him. He didn't know me. And he said, perfect idea. Let's do it. It sounds great. 
So uh, from there, went to a second book, and we have a contract for three books. So we'll see what happens. So how, how long ago uh, did you pitch that idea? Well, the first book came out in 2011. So okay. I probably pitched that idea in 2009. Wow. Okay. And from there, you've you've got to make a budget. You've got to make, you know, they have to make a list of all the gardens you're going to include. And the writer was made a list and the publisher made a list of what they wanted in there. So the writer would then say, no, that doesn't belong. This should be in there instead. And it went on from there. So um, then you have to sign a contract and go over the lots of paperwork and it just goes on and on and on. But uh, eventually you have a book and uh, it, it's a book to be proud of. So I'm, I'm glad it was done and I'm, I'm glad it's over. So <laughs> it, it was, it was tough making it because I would, I felt like I was back in the music, music industry, but I was on a, a band on the road or something, you know, waking up in a new town every day. So I'd do a workshop, I'd catch a plane, I'd fly to New York, I'd photograph there and then go up to Philadelphia or Boston down to Richmond, Virginia, fly back to another workshop, fly out to central Colorado, do a the, the uh, Japanese garden in Denver, and then to the next town. So always waking up in a different place. So how many, how many Japanese gardens have you photographed? Well, there's... Four, over 400 Japanese, public Japanese gardens in the United States and Canada. Wow. I did not, I had no idea. Yeah. Those are, then there's a lot of private ones. There's a ton of private ones, but public, uh, there are a ton of them. So I've probably photographed more than a quarter of them. So probably 125 or so or more. Wow. And how do they, how do they vary in terms of, um, subject and, um, scope and scale. Like I feel like I've only been to the Portland Japanese garden, which I went to like three times. Love it. It's one of my favorite uh -huh. places, but that's the only one I've been to. So I don't know. Are like, are they similar? Uh, yes and no. Um, the Portland Japanese garden was made in the fifties. So some of the Japanese gardens like New York, botanical or the one in Richmond are, were built in the late 1800s. So, oh. um, they've been around for a long time. They've changed and, but they were the basis of kind of the history of Japanese gardens in America. Mm -hmm. And early on there would be people, uh, who were of Japanese descent and then they would be asked, do you know how to build a Japanese garden? And they go, Oh Yeah. May, they probably didn't, but they just would <laughs> say that, and they'd start building a garden to think how American, how, how white people in America would like these gardens to be built, or the white people in America would build these Japanese gardens to think this is how the Japanese would like to see them. So there was this kind of lost in translation kind of thing um, with Japanese gardens in the U.S. So. They started fairly large and um, kind of, you know, like the one in San Francisco uh, is, is a smaller one, but uh, it has the the moon bridge and oh yeah, I've been to that one the, too. The lanterns, the lanterns that are that are big, and it's uh, there are other Japanese gardens out there that uh, are more subtle. As you get into to Japanese gardens built today, 
then you will see that they're more contemporary. They have less to do with lanterns and bridges and more to do with art and more to do with abstract sculpture. There's just uh, one that's 20 acres built in Michigan that has abstract sculpture all over it. And uh, it's it's a gorgeous garden and it just needs to mature. It's, it's brand new. So mm. it's like building a golf course. <laughs> They need to mature over time. I'm not a golfer, but <laughs> you know that they need to mature. So the young ones are kind of eh. And as they mature, they get better. And have you have you visited or photographed any that are overseas? I have. Um, <clears throat> I went to Slovenia and found a Japanese garden over there. So I photographed there. And then in Japan, I've photographed a lot of Japanese gardens. And how would you say that the Japanese gardens in Japan differ for the, for the ones in North America? They're a lot more traditional in the fact of in, in design there in the united states the pathway there's a lot more pathways it's almost like they're a lot more interactive than the ones in japan the ones in japan are, are mm -hmm. usually associated with a temple and the temple is still active so you can't place tripods anywhere there you have to handhold so if you go to japan you can't use your tripod. They don't have these Japanese maple trees that everyone photographs mm -hmm. at the Portland uh, Japanese garden. So you're not going to see that there. You're not going to see those moon bridges like you see at the Portland Japanese garden so much in Japan. So you're going to see a lot more stone uh, and moss and fewer trees probably. Mm -hmm. And do you have a, a favorite uh, garden other than the one in Portland? Uh, I, I really like the one in Fort Worth, Texas. Okay. Which, when you think of Texas, you don't think <laughs> Japanese gardens at all. But the one in Fort Worth, Texas is absolutely, I, I just find it gorgeous. Um, the the lighting that comes across the land there in the spring. And I, I, and I heard that it's kind of been run down since I photographed it last, which is um, too bad because it, when I was there photographing and I've, I've gone back a couple of times and it, it's just, uh, really a, a beautiful little garden that, well, it's not little, it's probably, I think it's 16 acres or something. So it's, it's fairly large, like everything else in Texas. <laughs> That's right. You know, having photographed, um, the one in Portland myself a few times, and I feel like it's kind of an interesting microcosm uh, nature experience. Uh, I'm curious kind of what, what your personal approach is to photographing a Japanese garden, having photographed 25% of North American Japanese <laughs> gardens. Like what is your approach? What do you look for? What are you trying to uh, kind of convey through your, through your images? Well, I, I usually, when I have photographed these gardens for the book, I usually end up going there the day before and I walk around the garden and look and see. It's, it's kind of like a football game where the coach is called the first 10 plays in the game. <laughs> so yeah. I look around and I look for sight lines. I, I look for the get to know you shot, which is usually associated with the moon bridge or a pond or a waterfall. And so I look for those particular scenes because when I go there the next morning, I'm going there early and I can't guarantee that it's going to be not be totally sunny and just horrible light. So I've got to get 10 shots in 
right away because a publisher said, okay, for these size gardens, you need so many shots. Sometimes it was for smaller gardens, it was 15. For larger gardens, it was 25 or 35 shots that I had to have. So getting those first 10 out of the way just within 10 minutes, I could then have time to look for the more, more of the detailed shots and, mm. and kind of the smaller shots that people might not see right away. But mm -hmm. uh, looking around the day before, I'd set up a lot of shots and getting there before the sun had risen, then I'd get at least 10 or 12 or 15 shots under my belt immediately. Mm -hmm. And are you uh, looking for um, more of the foliage type shots, like with trees, or are you looking for elements that kind of complement each other, like a statue or a pillar that with, with a tree near it, or kind of what... What kind of elements are you looking to combine for a for a Japanese garden photo? Uh, I would always, it depends on the season. So I would try, you know, in San Francisco, I was there in the spring and there was some wonderful cherry blossoms. So mm. I would look at the structure of the garden and kind of those entry gates with the, cher the cherry blossoms and shoot through the cherry blossoms into the structures and try to associate the garden with the season and get those types of shots. I know when I was in Tennessee and Nashville, Tennessee shooting, it was just, I, it was a totally clear day. I knew the light was going to suck in about a half an hour. So I had to get all those shots really fast and the cherry blossoms were fabulous. So mm. I just shot around the cherry trees and shot some of the, the sand and stone garden. And other than that, I could get in the shade after the sun came up and photograph some of the bamboo and play back there with some of the yard. But I had to get those other shots right away. So it was, it was mainly getting those seasonal trees. And then in Colorado, it was fall. So getting some of the uh, fall color in Colorado associated with uh, some of the gardens that were there, the one in Aspen I was photographing and just to give it a sense of place too. So include some of the mountains that are nearby, make sure that the Aspen and some of those Aspen colors were in with the, uh, the garden. So it really depends on the season, but I, I would look for those seasonal type shots and uh, also inclusive with the Japanese garden. Nice. Yeah. <clears throat> One of my favorite photos I've ever taken was in fall at the Japanese um, garden in Portland. And uh, I, it was just, I don't even know what kind of tree it was, but there was all these fallen leaves on the ground. And then in the distance, there's all these trees changing colors in various stages. And uh, it was just one of the coolest scenes I've ever seen. I I think I know where you shot that. <laughs> <laughs> I know that garden really, really well. <laughs> I'm sure. Like, it's kind of like a rolling hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. It's, it's kind of right off the, uh, the waterfall there. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Though. Yeah. That's a, that's a really cool place to shot I, this shoot. I've, I've got some really nice shots because the trees line up so well on that hill mm -hmm. and to combine all those trees in fall. And then when the fog rolls in in the fall, then that garden just becomes magical. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a crazy place in the fall, man. Yeah, I, I avoid the line of 35 people fighting for a, a spot under that tree, but otherwise uh, it stays pretty quiet everywhere else. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like 
there's a lot of hidden gems in that garden that people just don't know about or look for. I didn't really find that tree personally to be all that exciting to photograph. I mean, it's cool, but there's a lot of cool stuff there to take photos of. So, Yeah. And, you know, I, I've taken the picture of the tree a couple of times because the garden needed that shot from me because Mm -hmm. they're famous for it. So they needed that shot. So, Mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, it's kind of a derivative shot and they have its own flicker site under that tree. So there's just millions of shots on the flicker site. So when it, when it gets to that point, then it's kind of, yeah, it's been done (laughs) a few times, just a couple of times, a few times. Yeah. just once or twice. (laughs) So I was curious too, uh, for these books, um, what is the relationship that you have with the writer in terms of um, like you're providing images, but um, is there any collaboration with the writer in terms of uh, how to convey? Cause are they, I'm assuming they're not going to location with you. Like what is that? No, they're not. Yeah. They, they have, uh, you know, I, I photographed a private for the second book. I photographed a private garden in Los Angeles and the writer was there. Hmm. Uh, the writer is from Los Angeles. So, but the collaboration that I have with a writer is one, he knows the people that I need to contact at the garden Mm. to get in Mm -hmm. at the right time. So I have to contact these people long in advance to get the rights to do that. And a lot of these gardens, you can't use a tripod in. So in Arkansas at the Garvin Woodland Garden, absolutely stunning garden, but you can't bring a tripod in there. So I have to make, just go through that red tape to get a tripod set up and then get paper signed so I can get, uh, the rights to the photos on their land. And then I have to call these people that the writer has given me the names and it's usually the promotional person where the writer's talking to the garden person. So I call the garden person and they say, no, you got to talk to the promotional person, (laughs) uh, that kind of run around and then get the okay and then set it up. And when I go to a region to photograph gardens, then I try to get in three or four gardens in that region if I can Mm -hmm. and photograph those for the book. And then in terms of um, what the writer is actually writing uh, alongside with your imagery, how does that, how does that collaboration look? Well, he's not, he doesn't write per se to my images, but he does look at my images. Uh, the publisher picks out the images that belong in the book. And then we say, well, actually I've got a better image than the one you picked. So why don't you use this one instead? So there's that kind of finagling. And then the writer comes in and has to write uh, the liner notes for every image that gets in the book. So so the writer is responding to the images that I've taken by writing those liner notes. But mm. uh, as, as far as the book goes, I'll ask the writer beforehand, is there anything in particular you're going to write about for this garden that I have to photograph? Mm. And they'll say, oh, yeah, you need to photograph, blah, blah, blah. You know, you'll have three or four things that I have to get. So I know that going in. That makes sense. Okay, cool. Nice. Yeah, I've I've been thinking about someday writing a book, but I feel like I don't know enough about it yet. So appreciate you uh, answering my silly questions. Oh, they're not silly at all. It's just, you know, it's stuff you don't know until you do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you figure it out as you go. 
<laughs> well, and you just which uh, is life. <laughs> all right, exactly. Well, let's talk about long distance hiking because I feel like uh, we both have a interest in that. I do a lot of backpacking myself, um, uh-huh. and uh, and I know that's kind of one of the ways that you got kind of introduced into photography as well. And I was just curious, kind of like what what kind of long distance hiking are we talking about, and what do you kind of what what kind of hikes do you really like to do? Well, it's not long distance. Well, I can walk a long distance in a day, I guess, but it's not. I'll only do that on my long distance hikes, which is uh, over time. So the the Pacific Crest Trail I did in 1992. So that was something that I wanted to do and uh, just started walking from the Mexican border. And I can't really photograph on the way on these so well, but I, I did have a point and shoot camera. So I photographed on the way and it was kind of interesting because after I did the Pacific Crest trail hike, I looked at all the slides. It was 92. So you have slide film at the time. Yeah. So I looked at all the slides and I noticed, wow, all these shots are pretty much color, color, color. I just fell in love with color, whether it's fall leaves or whether it's flowers in the spring. It's just, I was trying to photograph as much color as possible. And that's kind of why I got into photography is I just saw color everywhere. And that was what my photography was about to begin with. And then I decided it was in my blood, so I started walking the Continental Divide Trail, and I started at the Canadian border and walked the spine of the the Rockies through uh, Montana, along the Idaho-Montana border, and into Wyoming, and then into uh, Colorado, down through New Mexico. And when I was done with that, I looked at my slides again and said, okay, I've got the color thing going still, but I really included a lot more form. And so there was a lot more line. There was a lot more repetition and rhythm and leading line. So in pattern, so that kind of stood out for me when I looked at all my shots all together at the end of that trip. And then I decided to walk um, from there. I wanted to continue that trip because I liked it so much. So I started way, way north in Canada, the northern part of the the Rockies in Canada. But uh. I don't know, 150 miles north of Prince George, way up north, and then just started walking south. And uh, there was a lot of rain and snow, and the weather was really shitty. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I got a lot of rainbows and incidents of incidents of light and and stuff. So I I looked at those slides and I went, oh, I was really paying more attention to the light this time. And then I decided to walk across Iceland from the northern tip to the southern tip and I did that in 96 and when I was done wow. with that um, my friend was I, I went with another person this time and when you're in the middle of Iceland that the green part just kind of s- stays around for about seven miles and then it gets really <laughs> just dirt and dust in the center of it and I was told that the the dust storms there were man stopping which <laughs> <laughs> it just, it sounds like a horror film, you know, don't go down in the basement, but, uh, man stopping was kind of worrisome. And then we had a dust storm, which was basically man stopping. It was <laughs> absolutely horrible. Um, but when you're in the middle of nowhere in a bunch of dirt, the only thing to photograph is your buddy that you're hiking with. So 
uh, you know, I just, I, I started to include, um, people more in my photographs too. So, mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of my takeaway from the Iceland trip. And from there I, you know, I do other walks. I decide to walk across Arkansas and other things and the Alaska national wildlife refuge. I wanted to walk across that just because there was a big fight for the environment there. And it was, I wanted to find out why, and I wanted to see for myself what, what people are fighting about. And it's an absolutely gorgeous and beautiful place and it should be fought for. It should be preserved. Yeah, a buddy of mine just went up there for an assignment. Uh, he works for the Wilderness Society. His name is Mason Cummings. He did an assignment up there, and he said it's just one of the most beautiful places he's ever photographed. Yeah, it, it's it's stunning. It's spectacular. Um, I, I love it up in the Arctic, and just the bird life, the wildlife, and the mosquito life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Being up there, with the mosquitoes were just horrid the first week I was up there, and then it snowed, which killed billions of mosquitoes, and I was I was happy. <laughs> so, so what is it about these uh, long distance hikes uh, that keeps you doing them? Because I know they're they're significantly challenging undertakings, especially for you know people that you know have full time jobs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's pretty it's pretty unattainable for a lot of people. So, like what what keeps you going back for more? Uh, well, it's, I've done less of it recently just, um, due to injury, but, uh, I still have a couple in the works and, but it, it's in the blood. I can't, I can't it's hard to explain. <laughs> it, it is hard to explain because once you did it, once you do it, it, gets in your blood and you enjoy just being out there and it changes you once, you know, I'll go out on a week long backpacking trip or a two week or a three week backpacking trip, but things don't change inside of you. Once you're out there for about a month or a month and a half, things start to sink in and you do change. You do notice subtle, subtle differences in the atmosphere. You do know when things are going to, the weather is going to change. And you know that about two days out, you can just sense it. And, um, you know, I think animals have that sense in them, but as humans in mostly living in urban areas and around concrete and around cell towers and with phones, we lose those sensations. So they are in us. And, uh, once you're out there for a while, you, you do sense it and you come back to the world and it, it's hard once you're done with that hike to come back into the world. Um, that's the hardest part, I think. And once you come back into the world, you kind of notice that the world we live in is fairly upside down and living out there is not such a bad thing. Mm -hmm. How has, uh, doing long distance, uh, backpacks, how has that informed your, your, your vision for photography? Uh, it's, it's made it easier, I guess, just because I have a feel for what I want to see in the land and, um, you know, you get an idea of, 
okay, if the land looks like this over the other hill, it should look exactly like that. <laughs> and if you, you can find what you're looking for a lot more readily and uh, you have a sense for the land that you might not have if you haven't spent a lot of time out there. So I, I think it helps with photography immensely. Yeah, absolutely. Did, um, have you have you done any trips uh, since you've been a full-time photographer with a full camera kit at all or a, a, or a modified camera kit in terms of like wanting to capture more landscape images while you're doing your, your hike? Yeah, I well, I I can't do long distance hiking and good photography. It's hard, right? At the same time, it, it's it it's almost mutually exclusive. Um, I I do have a trip that I've had in the works and and I've been thinking about um, called the Badudakan Trail in South Korea. It's called the the Backbone Trail. So it follows the spine of the the mountains of South Korea, and that's something that's in my imagination, I really want to do and complete. And that I would have to bring a camera along and do good photography. So uh, whether I will or not, we'll see. But what I'm doing now is going back with a backpack and photographing some of the areas that I walked through that I just absolutely loved and wanted to revisit and then try to do it justice with a camera. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's the Bob Marshall Wilderness uh, below Glacier or whether it's the Anaconda Pintware Wilderness in Montana, that's uh, just a gorgeous place to be. Those are wilderness areas that I enjoyed along my hike for one reason or another. And those are areas that I've gone back, you know, the South San Juan, Colorado, um, <laughs> really love those areas. So, yeah, the CDT goes through probably my favorite section of Colorado right there near Stony Pass and um the Colorado Trail goes through there as well it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's and I'm like an hour away from all that stuff right here so it's that's awesome yeah it's it's my favorite man I was gonna ask you if you like the <laughs> South San Juans and you said South San Juans of Colorado I'm like yes <laughs> no they were they're absolutely spectacular yeah it's amazing. Um, so I need to go back there uh the altitude, getting used to the altitude again is going to be tough. So Yeah, that's a, it's definitely a variable you have to plan ahead for. <laughs> yeah, really. You know, when I went through Colorado, I was just flying because um, I'd been through Montana and there's not a lot of trail in Montana. So you're doing, uh, they say it's done, but it's not. So you're cross-countrying, you're following roads, and, you know, deer track and then... Uh, it links you up with a two track, which links you up with trail, right. which then goes, ends in the middle of a woods. And then you have to figure <laughs> it out again. So as long as you're heading South, you're not lost. So that's the way I figured it. And, and you got into some weird places too, because I had this one map that was created in 1938 and they hadn't updated it yet. So you come over the hill and it's, <laughs> you're supposed to follow this one trail, but now there's a huge lake there because they built a dam. <laughs> oh. like, what the fuck am I supposed to do now? <laughs> <laughs> there's no trail to the middle of this <laughs> reservoir. I know. And then, you know, what do I do? Do I go over the bridge? Do I have to walk around the lake this way? And is there a bridge on the river now? What's going on? It's, and when you're, when you're in a car, you don't have to think about that stuff, but 
when you're walking and then all of a sudden there's a giant lake, it could be 10 miles one way and 10 miles the other way. And you better hope you make the wrong, the right decision. Otherwise it's a 30 mile indecision and that's a day's worth of walking. So anyway, those are, those are things that with map and compass that you don't get anymore, which is a good thing, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I I feel like, there's there's some com, some magic to be found in map and compass, but it also induces a lot of anxiety for some people. So I don't know. Yeah, it it can, but uh, but being around your phone, the electronics all the time can induce enough anxiety anyway. <laughs> oh, beautiful said. Uh, what was it like in? You said you did some like a through hike in Arkansas. What was that like? Uh, yeah, I walked that in the fall. It's the Ozark Highland Trail and they're actually expanding it now up into Missouri, I guess. So I haven't walked it, the Missouri part, but I I walked across Arkansas and there was a small guidebook for that. And it was, it was a gorgeous trail. I walked it through fall and fall in Arkansas is beautiful. Hmm. The the state of Arkansas is gorgeous. I I keep telling people how beautiful it is there. And they go, why don't you do a workshop there? I go, because no one would sign up. I go, I would. And I said, no, you won't. I could guarantee it. If I put Arkansas on there, no one's going to sign up, but it's gorgeous, gorgeous place. So walking through that land, um, there are a lot of waterfalls. There's probably more waterfalls there than Arkansas and and then uh, Oregon in the spring. What? Um, Yeah. Yeah. There's water. There's hundreds and hundreds of waterfalls in Arkansas that is just amazing. And a lot of them dry up. So you get into these really cool kettles and potholes on some of the streams and some the fall color. If it's a good fall year, the fall color is gorgeous. And it just kind of has this, this little spookiness to the land. There's some really interesting rocks out there. Uh, so it, it's it's a beautiful place. Huh. What kind of uh, what kind of trees are there out there in the fall? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I've been there so many times, <laughs> but in the, in the spring, there's a lot of blooming trees, like the red buds. Um, there's a lot of blossoming trees, but, uh, the hardwoods, mostly hardwoods out in that area. There are some pine forests, a little bit of pine, but, uh, most of it's hardwood. So with that hardwood, it's kind of like new England in a way where you get tons of color and a lot of variety of color. And if it gets too hot and dry, then not, not so much color. And what's the fall down there? Like, are we talking November or? Yeah. 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 So once you shoot in, uh, October or November is, it's pretty much going there, you know, first week of November to Thanksgiving, probably. Oh, that's awesome. Depending on the year, I guess. But, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. That sounds great. You could do a huge fall color, like trip from Canada down through Utah and Colorado, all the way down to Arkansas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in the spring is beautiful too, because so many waterfalls. So, you know, hmm. it's summer avoid because it's really, really hot, but uh, yeah, but it's a pretty state. Uh, I really appreciated your article uh, talking about how like, you're just not going to tell people, you know, where certain locations are and, you know, it's, there's, there's some value in exploration and, um, that's kind of part of the journey we have as, as photographers and discovering places on our own. And it's, for me, I don't know about you, but that's kind of part of the magic is just discovering stuff. But, uh, I guess, um, I was hoping you could maybe talk a little bit about your motivations 
around uh, writing that article on your blog post. And then also I was hoping maybe uh, you could talk a little bit about or respond to some of the negative comments you got on your blog post about, uh, you know, the duality between you as a workshop leader, taking people to locations that are maybe used to be kind of unknown and now are kind of overrun with people and kind of that juxtaposition and uh, kind of where you stand now. And yeah, what's your, what do you say? Uh, It is hard and it's it was it was a hard article for me to write because I've you know as part of the Photo Cascadia team it's about sharing it's about education and uh, I would do, used to write blogs on cool places to go and things to see and uh, I I enjoy sharing that kind of information and but I've seen on the flip side a lot of destruction and in the Columbia Gorge when that kid blew off the firecracker and it started that huge fire, that was kind of the nail in the coffin for me in a way. It's just the gorge needs a rest. There's so many people coming up from Portland and I live in the gorge. I live in the Eastern end of the gorge. So I've, I've seen a lot of fire, um, around my house. There's been quite a bit of fire and there's a guy setting fires off in the Eastern end of the gorge and has been for the last couple of years. Um, so the, it was kind of this struggle with that duality that you were talking about just because I want to share information, but I also see the detriment of sharing that information. And as a workshop leader, I've Mm -hmm. also contributed to that and, you know, I've got to take part of that blame. So I don't see that as a negative comment. I see that as reality because it's true. So, uh, as far as my workshops go, go, um, you know, I, I, I try to take people to less sensitive areas and I always have, I have tried to educate people as much as possible on the effects of us being there and to not kill what we came to photograph, uh, to, you know, to stay on trails, to, to be respectful of private property. And I think all of those are, are good things. So I, I think education is one thing that we will need going forward, but I'm not naive enough to think that that's going to be the only thing going forward. Um, but to, you know, I was, I was just uh, photographing the prairie lands and I found some really cool spots. So part of me wants to shout out where these spots are because they're so cool and to share that information. But um, now it's kind of, uh, I, I did my research. I went to these areas, I photographed them and I don't know that I want to let that cat out of the bag because I can see that they're fragile too. So, you know, they, they do need to be protected in the long run. Yeah. It's hard because I feel like I struggle with that going to some remote locations here in Colorado. And I've, I've had a lot of people kind of call you out like if you share a photo of a from a place that's yeah and it, it's tough um you know but photographers can also do good by photographing these places and i know it was a while ago but in oregon or, or you, you know the the silver fall state park in oregon have you ever been there i have not but i know where i know where you're talking okay well th- that's around because a photographer um 
that photograph that area early on and really and countless of places whether it's a painter whether it's a photographer but uh june drake was the person that photographed that back in the 1930s and that park is preserved because of june drake and he was there photographing showing how remarkable that area was and that whole area would have been logged out and totally trashed and there'd be roads all through that area so photography can do wonders to to preserve places but it can also do harm and the way it's being used right now as kind of a with the instagram hordes saying look at me look at me look where i am that's uh it, it's less about the land and more about the person and i think making your photographs more about the land more about the place and more about the sacredness of that place is a good thing to do yeah what would you say to people that uh, maybe these instagram um photographers and i ha- i hate that word instagram photographer but you know people that maybe are seeing themselves as an influencer or that they're they're trying to uh, monetize their photography through brand sponsorships and things like that. Like, what advice would you have for them in terms of walking that kind of tightrope in terms of balancing their need to, uh, you know, make a living, but also mm-hmm. ensure that um, other people in the future can make that same living. Yeah. And I, well, I'm part of that because, yeah, and I, I, I need to make a living too. And I, I do workshops in places and I get my permits and all that stuff and, and take groups into areas. And I try to avoid the more sensitive areas when I go out in workshops. So for those, I guess it's just have respect for those people, have respect for the land. Um, know that it's not always going to be that way and to have respect for it to leave it for our the next people coming along because there's young people that will want to enjoy that land in the future there's the larger part about that too it's not just photographers but there's you know larger forces at work that want to use that land for mining or oil or gas or other uh and and i know that we need the elements and I know that we need the oil and I know that we need the gas, but, uh, some of these places are sacred and to strip those areas, uh, is, is tough too. And Mm -hmm. Theodore Roosevelt said long ago, do not let the selfish man or greedy interests skin your country of its beauty, its riches or its romance. And that's, those are words that, um, are true today. So I think we also have to, look at what that president said long ago when these national parks were being set up and these special places were being set aside. And some of those sayings back then are also true today. And I think it's lasted almost a century already. So let's keep it going. Well said. I think that's a perfect segue for me to to ask you about your role as a workshop leader Um, because you kind of already touched on a small part of that in terms of education and stewardship and trying to pass, pass forward the torch of conservation as it relates to, um, respect for the places we photograph. But I'm curious, kind of from your perspective, what other roles does a good workshop leader have for their students? Some of the roles that I take on is 
I kind of like to be part weatherman and know where to go <laughs> and the best places to go by, by knowing the weather and knowing what's going to happen and trying to get to the right place at the right time. Uh, knowing the lay of the land uh, is important and being familiar with that area is, is also helpful. So I do a lot. It, my best in the Northwest workshops, it's kind of gives you an idea of where I am. It's in the Northwest of the United States, the Pacific Northwest, the United States. So I, I know this country, this, this section of country pretty damn well. So I know it's sensitive. I know where to stay out of. And, uh, those are things that I, I look for as a workshop, uh, instructor, but as far as teaching goes, I think it's important to know your stuff and to, uh, to know the history of, of landscape photography, I think is also helpful to know where it's come from, where it's going and, uh, and to have an outlook that's not just 10 years old hmm. sometimes. So looking, looking forward into the future, uh, what kind of topics, issues, um, tidbits do you think a good, uh, workshop leader should be carrying with them in their vest of tricks? Looking forward to the future. You're getting into the future a lot today. <laughs> I know. What's up with that? <laughs> I know. It's like I'm, I've got to look into my crystal ball or throw bones on it. Is this long distance hiker table, uh, hiker? Am I supposed to throw bones out on the table? And I think you should. Read, yeah. Read let's, let's consult the bones. I, I don't know. Maybe it's your voice. Like you give off this kind of wise, like elder kind of. I'm going to tell you what you need to know, but you didn't know you needed to know it kind of vibe. So, <laughs> Yeah. Right now you, you wouldn't know it, but I have a really long beard. I'm sitting on top of a mountain and, <laughs> and, you're, uh, and you're stroking it slowly. The beard. I'm stroking it slowly. <laughs> and my knees are crossed. My legs are crossed. That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> why don't you repeat the question? Because in all this silliness, I forgot what you, what you asked. So basically uh, kind of, you know, you said that a good workshop leader should be kind of looking towards the future in terms of like giving people or knowing what's coming, like what kind of emerging topics are happening. What are some of the things that people maybe want to know as photographers? And I'm just curious, what are some of those emerging topics or thoughts or ideas that, that you're carrying around in your vest of tricks as a workshop leader that, that you might think other workshop leaders should know. Obviously, we have other listeners that are workshop leaders signing non-disclosure agreements, so you're good to go. Yeah, and I, I don't, I, I don't do that. Um, so, and that's that's the prerogative of the person doing it. And I, I know that um, as far as those non-disclosure agreements go, <laughs> that uh, it's easy for people to take workshops from workshop leaders and then compete with them and do the exact same workshop that they're doing. Mm -hmm. So I, I've heard stories and I know that happens. So non-disclosure agreements are probably something that going into the future, you'll see more and more of to protect business, especially as we head into the, you know, there's a recession coming probably. So as we head into that recession, um, you'll probably see more of that as people try to protect their turf as it were. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
there's probably more legalities. Um, I know that when I started doing these workshops, and I know Brian Rube talked uh, about this also, that really the permit system wasn't in place. And now you have permits for, you know, I have to apply for the Washington State Parks. Um, I know in California, the permits are about as, they're harder than national parks um, at the California State Parks. So you'll be seeing more and more permits and more restrictions on photography in areas and in the landscape and taking groups and group sizes will be limited. So a lot of that's going to go on. So there'll be a lot more legalese as we could probably come into uh, doing workshops in the future. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, consequences that we're starting to uh, experience as, as photography leaders. And I think uh, the more that people can be mindful of you know some of those unintended consequences looking forward, I think people will be well positioned to... Uh, to have some success. Yeah. And uh, so you'll be doing a lot more paperwork. I've got a stack of paperwork that I have to do. So um, I've got this, I've been putting off this stack for a couple of weeks now, but <laughs> I, I know it's coming and coming. So I have to I have a stack of paperwork I'm going to be getting to soon. So <laughs> it's not my favorite part of this job at all. Oh, I know. It's it's unfortunate, but I think it's, um, I think it's an, a necessity nowadays that there's going to be a little bit more red tape, especially if, you know, there's just hasn't really been a lot of accountability in terms of the impact the industry is having. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, uh, it's to be expected. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, when I was around 2004, there was nobody really doing work. There was, weren't a lot of people out there doing workshops right. and now there's a lot of people doing workshops. Yeah. So, uh, it's changed a lot. So I can see being a litigious society, why we have so many of these permits and why I have to get a guiding license and why I have to jump through these hoops. And I, you know, I think it's, you have to have first aid or wilderness first aid, which I do. And that's just, those are things that the workshop leaders need because shit happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're kind of winding down. I was uh, curious if you had any uh, recommendations for other people that people might be interested in hearing here on the podcast. Well, a few people come to mind. Um, you know, you've gone through three of the seven photo Cascadia people. So there's four others there. So uh, I guess it's the, uh, they're, they're in the wings, but, uh, I also thought of Jack DeKinga. Um, he's kind of the godfather of, uh, the desert Southwest photography. And if you look at a shot from the desert Southwest, it's kind of like Jack DeKinga has done that. <laughs> so he, he, he's followed in the, uh, footsteps of Philip Hyde and LA Porter. So he's, he's kind of the, the godfather of that area. Um, and he's one of Pulitzer Prize. So not a lot of landscapes photographers can say that. Um, Christian Hebe, he's a friend of mine and, uh, he's a travel photographer. So he does landscape, but he's a lot of travel photography too. And he, if you ask him if he's ever been to a country and you can name some obscure country that no one's ever heard of. And he goes, yeah, I've done a book on that. So <laughs> that's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing how many books he's done. He's done over 200 books. So, uh, he's, he was born in Switzerland and he, he's an American, he's, uh, transplanted American now. So he's got a citizenship here, but, uh, he's a, he's a good photographer. And, uh, another guy that's 
I've recently started following is Brian David Griffith, and he is a photographer, painter, and a sculptor. Sculptor, and he uh, shows at museums and galleries uh, around the United States. And I don't know the guy; I've never heard him speak, but. Uh, it would be interesting to hear someone that does all of those things. He's a minimalist landscape photographer, but to hear how his his other art forms help his photography or vice versa. Right. So um, that would be something that would be of interest. Yeah, that would be really interesting for sure. Cool, man. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to come onto the podcast. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing more of your really insightful uh, blog posts. Great. Thank you very much. And now I'm going to have to uncross my legs, shave my beard, and get down off the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks to David for taking the time to come on to the show. I really love his work and his online persona. It just exudes professionalism and thoughtfulness, two things that are very rare these days. I also really want to check out his Japanese garden photo book, which I have linked to in the liner notes. All right, well, I really want to thank our newest patrons for the podcast, Roger Nadell, Michael Rung, and Cody Schultz. You guys are all super awesome for supporting the show. With your support, we just eclipsed our goal of $1,000 a month. As a reminder, I promised that after we reached this goal, I would create a Landscape Photography Conservation Award. As such, I will begin work on the selection criteria and start soliciting nominations soon. Thank you all so much for your support over the past two years. I really can't express my thanks enough. Well, if you're a listener and you've not yet made a pledge, there is more reasons than ever to pledge. We have over 80 bonus episodes over on Patreon for anyone supporting the show at the $5 a month level. Additionally, patrons of the podcast are encouraged to participate in our themed photo contests, which do have prizes on occasion, by submitting them to the community board over on our Patreon page, which can be found at patreon.com slash fstopandlisten slash community. The current theme which will end on July 26, 2019, is Mountains and Deserts, in honor of a tattoo that I'm in the process of getting. Let's see all those awesome shots over on the community board. All right, well, let's talk about who's coming up on the podcast. Next up is Taylor Gray, a travel and landscape photographer living in the Pacific Northwest. We had a really fun conversation, and I'm really looking forward to releasing that one. I'm still hoping to record with Wai Hao Pan from China tonight, so we'll see if that comes off. We also have Ryan Smith and Dustin Lefebvre joining us soon to talk about the Outsiders Photography Conference. And I'm also really looking forward to recording with Perry Shilat in a few weeks in Montana. All right. Well, I'd like to give a special thanks and shout out to the people we like to call our Patreon podcast producers. These incredible people support the podcast at $20 a month or higher over on our Patreon page. So thank you so much to Ken Dono, Danny LeFrancois, James Bakavoy, Matthias at Photomagica, Richard Wong, Zachary Smith, Gary Randall, Frank Otto Peterson, Michael Run, William Nurse, Laurie Berenson, Anton Everine, David Kingham, Jason Matias, Charlotte Gibb, Jeff Peterson, Chris Rice, Eric Stensland, 
Jack Curran, and Michael Howard. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.